0: Some people say the metaverse will only be virtual. One day, farmers will use augmented reality to monitor the health of their soil and run irrigation simulations to help ensure the best yields. And urban planners will model traffic solutions in the metaverse to help decrease commute times, paving the way for less congested cities. The metaverse may be virtual, but the impact will be real. Learn more about what Meta is building for the metaverse at meta.com metaverseimpact.
2: Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system which supports our independent. And in community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care.
0: So we continue to focus on PBM reform and how popular our series has become with pharmacists, pharmacy owners, uh, state representatives, people in Senate, when they're sharing these podcasts and the type of uh, guests that we've collected, really giving us some inside view into what's happening and there's components of this that are still very complex and i don't expect things to change overnight but i see more progression of changing the pbm and payment model and our relationships with medicare uh, medicaid um, many different ways of getting diagnostics paid for uh, the realm of pharmacogenomics and at the right time making sure that pharmacists can request and execute on such a test and get that paid for to, to help uh, curb and manage medications. Today is exciting because I get to talk with two people who really have an understanding of the coming of Medicare opportunities, uh, reigning in prescription drug costs for individuals and insurance providers, including those participating in Medicare Part D. It's a big problem and it really needs meaningful solutions. It needs things that we're not We're not calling out the three big PBMs and saying, you know, you evil entities and profiteering and blah, blah, blah. It's really us saying, no, we want to come together and make meaningful solutions. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is in the middle of a multi-year effort to make a dent in those prices for themselves and patients uh, nationally, state to state. And we've seen some states make some amazing strides in their Medicaid uh, systems and and how to get more out of their tax dollars for uh, the people that need it most, our patients, as well as paying pharmacists what they should be making through consults and digging into much more serious disease states and comorbidity where you have to deal with multiple things happening in that patient's life. I'm so excited to welcome David Techman and Dr. Letitia Salinas, uh, PharmD, to the PBM Reform podcast series. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Todd. Thank Glad you. To be here. So, I want to start with uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Salinas. Uh, Letitia, could you give us just a little bit of of a background on yourself and and answer the the question we always like to ask our pharmacists: Why did you want to become a pharmacist?
3: Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, I have been with Active Radar for three years now, working in clinical operations. Our specialty has been developing a therapeutic alternatives database and service. And so my background is that um, I developed a Medicare formulary operations department at a PBM. So I understand, you know, complying with CMS formulary requirements, and I understand how to operationalize those in the claim system. And now at Active Radar, my role, you know, has been to help develop therapeutic alternative services, keeping in mind my background of understanding, uh, you know, Medicare formulary operations, as well as just how PBMs um, operate. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's an exciting project for me at at Active Radar. It's been amazing uh, the amount of progress that we've made, um, you know, in the past four years to develop this beautiful therapeutic alternatives product product that can be operationalized in a claim system or in a real-time benefit check system. Uh, the reason that I became a pharmacist is that um, I my mom was really um, into herbals and vitamins back in the day before it was popular, and I wanted to learn, you know, why does vitamin C help the immune system, et cetera, so that's the reason I became a pharmacist.
0: Thank you for that, uh, Letitia. That's exciting to hear. And yes, functional medicine, integrative medicine is really taking a new role in advancing in our healthcare system, and it's being led by pharmacists, which really excites me. Can't think of a better provider to be out front, understanding how other, um, you know, non-prescription um, uh, substances could interact with someone's uh, system and personalize that. So, thank you for being here. Mr. David Techman you actually wrote and and participated in writing an active um an active radar op-ed and and really had some interesting insights which triggered this interview so I want to give our listeners a stage set a little bit of your background and I want you to tell us about active radar and then your your passion to Really help get more out of the um, out of the tax dollars that Medicare's uh, pulling in for medication management.
4: Sure, Todd. Thank you. Actually, uh, I uh, I've been in healthcare for 43 years now. I actually started off as a sales rep uh, selling hospital supplies right out of college, and have been in healthcare ever since. I actually got started in the pharmacy and PBM side of healthcare back in the early 90s with a good friend of mine who started one of the early PBMs and was successful. And we sold that and went on to do other ventures in the pharmacy space. And so been involved in this area for a long time. And part of my thinking about the op-ed and writing, it had to do with the fact that the PBMs that we were involved in 30 years ago are not the PBMs of today. And that's not to bash them, but it is to say they operate differently and there's more black box there than we'd all like. But in addition to that, the programs that CMS is embarking on in terms of requiring real-time benefit check technology in for its Medicare Re- Part D recipients, along with the, the recent regulatory Uh, effort that started this January where Medicare Part D recipients on the EOBs that they receive, the explanation of benefits on behalf of what they pay for prescription drugs, also is required to contain therapeutic alternatives for the first time, meaning that it will begin to identify for the patient that there are alternatives to the drug that's been prescribed that are clinically appropriate and less expensive and so there are some opportunities here to look at ways of saving money on the prescription drug benefit not only for medicare recipients but across the board as these types of programs take hold
0: thank you for stage setting and really helping us understand um your passion in this and the information that you bring that you're bringing to the table Um, you wrote about how requiring the technologies that that a uh, Medicare Part D, in in the um, in in a way that they're possibly not using it today could save additional uh, dollars, and how they had professed and talked about a, a seventy-five million dollars savings, and in your op-ed, you actually um, were talking about a um, billion dollars savings, and in, in, in more so so. I want you to unpack yeah. what you're thinking about how this model implanted into, um, you know, CMS could make a big difference, and how we collectively, with all those listening, could reach out to their uh, policymakers, uh, send this podcast to them so that they can listen and then really understand and be able to unpack it.
4: Sure. What's important is that the concept of therapeutic alternatives is one where you can provide to the practicing physician who's writing a prescription on behalf of a specific individual, alternatives that would be clinically appropriate to treat whatever condition they're writing that prescription for. And what's good about what CMS is doing is these requirements for real-time benefit check, and what I mean by that is, there's technology that exists today where there are connections that can electronically send prescription information at the point of care, meaning to the physician in the exam room that is about to write a prescription, there's an ability to send to that physician information on alternatives to that drug they may be writing for that would identify clinically appropriate alternatives and economic information, meaning that the physician could understand not only what the drug would cost, but also with those alternatives, what the payer, the plan sponsor for that individual might save with some of those alternatives and even more importantly, what that specific patient and individual could save if that physician would consider some of those clinical alternatives. And the CMS regulations are taking advantage of this technology. Uh, Unfortunately, the data that's being sent through that technology or through what we call those electronic pipes, if you will, is not very good. That information is coming from the PBMs and unfortunately, the PBMs with their third therapeutic alternative programs operate at too high a level. They don't contain the appropriate, what you'd call equipotent dose information and daily consumption amount, meaning the number of pills, so the physician can understand that if he's writing for drug A, drug B would be clinically appropriate but what would be the cost difference and what would be the appropriate way to write the prescription for the right dose in pill count. That information is actually available through Active Radar and our therapeutic alternative service, but it's unique. Unfortunately, the industry traditionally does not have that information. We've developed some technologies and capabilities that allow us to do that across what is now 124 different therapeutic categories that creates some almost 29,000 what we call perfect pairs, meaning we can identify drug A to drug B clinically appropriate and economically viable and send that information. What CMS is doing is putting in place regulations that are requiring the industry to do this. What's also interesting, it's not unlike pharmaceutical advertising today. When you think about it, one of the main rules of advertising has always been only try to advertise to those people who are interested and have the ability to buy your product. Well, 10 to 20 years ago, pharma started breaking those rules, meaning they know if they advertise drug A to Dave Techman, Dave Techman cannot go out and buy drug A. Dave Techman can only buy drug A if I get a prescription from a physician. But they spend billions of dollars a year advertising all kinds of prescription medications to me and others through telephone to uh, through TV and radio and other media, recognizing that the only way we can buy that medication is to take that advertisement and that information to a physician, ask them to write us a prescription. So what CMS is doing with their newest regulation that just went into effect this month, is they're putting that therapeutic alternative information on that patient's EOB, so they have the ability to take that EOB into a physician and say, what about these other alternatives? They could be less expensive for me than what you're currently prescribing. Well, that's a great opportunity, but it's only a good opportunity if, in fact, that alternative information is accurate. And to date, we know it's unfortunately not. And so what is likely to happen is you're going to have patients walking into physician offices asking about prescription alternatives that aren't clinically accurate and economically viable. That's going to do two things. It's going to frustrate the physician and it's going to frustrate the patient. That's clearly not what CMS intends, unless that that's the type of pressure that's necessary to help change the industry to be sure that viable clinical and economic information is in fact being presented. That's what CMS is trying to accomplish right now with their Medicare Part D requirements. It's a laudable effort. I think it's great. We all need to have better clinical information. We all need to have more economic information to make good decisions, but it all starts with the ability to get that information to the physician who ultimately is going to write that prescription Because the patient can't do it on their own. That's where this is all going. And an accurate therapeutic alternative program is the key to that. And to be accurate, again, from a technical standpoint, Leticia can explain it. The equipotent dose level and the Dacon or the daily consumption amount, the number of pills is the level that's required to be clinically accurate and economically viable. And you have to get that information to the physician. That's what an appropriate therapeutic alternative program
0: should do. Leticia, okay. as as a, as a pharmacist, as someone that's listening to this, I want you to expand upon what, what Dave is sharing. But I also want you to answer the question that is burning in my mind, and that is why CMS isn't recognizing the pharmacist within the switching of different therapies as the best provider of that information and decisions based on the collaboration with physicians. Because you've been soaking in that uh, drug, drug and drug information um, as the as the expert, we can't expect the physician to know everything that's going on with every single drug and certainly not digging down into the medication regime of a patient. So could you kind of expand upon that?
3: Sure. So um, CMS actually began, I believe, with the philosophy that they were going to create this new infrastructure or use it, leverage the infrastructure that's already out there in the PBMs and in real-time benefit check systems. They're going to use the pipes and now put, um, you know, clinically relevant information in there to provide not just pricing, but clinically accurate therapeutic alternatives. So that was where they began this multi-year um, you know process and rollout of the three mandates, right? The, the three mandates were uh, real-time benefit check to the physician, and then it was providing the alternatives to the member on the EOB. And then lastly, they, they want real-time benefit check um, capabilities going to the member. And we can discuss you know all three of those programs uh, in more depth if you'd like. But CMS began with you know a, an amazing idea um, to tackle the problem of drug pricing because obviously we're not going to have an effect on you know pharma's pricing of drugs. It's a free market system. So where can we have impact on the consumer side? The consumers are the patients and the physicians. And so cms is addressing the consumer choice aspect in their three you know uh, programs, the real-time benefit check to physicians and then the two, intervention types to, to beneficiaries or members. So they began with the intention of providing clinically ther, you know appropriate therapeutic alternatives. Um, they got a lot of pushback from the industry and uh, Part D sponsors because they weren't ready to provide clinically precise recommendations. And so they rescinded that requirement and said, okay, well, just put all formulary alternatives that that might be used for that condition then. And so that's where that's um currently where we are but I believe that CMS will evolve and require, a, you know, a higher level of clinical precision to, you know, to provide therapeutic alternatives. And I thought that we should walk through an example of how this would all play out if, you know, if Todd you were a patient and Um, you're working with your physician. So, um, you know, let's preface this with, you know, in the industry, uh, this is a paradigm shift, right? Like for uh, organizations, you know, to have a government mandate that says that they're going to provide clear, accurate, transparent, lower cost, appropriately, you know, appropriate clinical alternatives. And all this information is going to be provided upfront in an automated tool to the patient and to the prescriber, right? This is new, it's evolving. So, um, but the way that it would play out today is, um, let's say Todd, that you have uh, really high cholesterol, you have heart failure and you have high blood pressure. So you go see your doctor, you're a Medicare uh, recipient. And you guys discuss that there's two drugs that will cover all three conditions very well in the doctor's experience. So your doctor starts typing in the real-time benefit system, the, the two drugs that she's going to recommend for you. And for your high cholesterol drug uh, medication, the system is going to provide an alternative that's cheaper because that's one of the mandates, right, is you know lower cost. But this lower cost drug is a lower potency drug. So it's going to be less effective for you, Todd, because you have high cholesterol. But because the requirement is just put the formulary alternatives, they don't have to line up, that's good enough for the requirement. It'll check the box on the requirement that they gave you an alternative in this bucket of drugs that will treat cholesterol. Um, now, so let, let's address your, you know high, your high blood pressure and your heart failure. So, the doctor in her mind was thinking she'd give you one pill that covers those two conditions. She goes into the real time benefit check system, and the system recommends a drug that's in the, it, it meets the criteria of being in the drug class and it meets the criteria of being lower cost, but it will only cover one of your two conditions. It'll cover your blood pressure, but not your heart failure issue. So, we're 0 for 2. You know, the doctor has, at this point, she's losing confidence in the system. So she's going to ignore the recommendations that were provided in the system. And she'll dismiss all of this, uh, you know, the the system and, and, you know, the recommendations as irrelevant. And she'll, you know, ultimately give you the two medications that were more appropriate for you. You go on your merry way. In three weeks, your Part D plan is going to send you an explanation of benefit letter in the mail. And you're going to get the same information that the doctor did in a letter. And it's going to say, hey, Todd, we see that you're on these two medications. Did you know that there's these two lower cost medications that you could be using to treat your condition? So you don't know that the doctor already went through this process and you call the doctor's office and you say, hey, doctor, um, I got a letter from my Part D plan that says I could be using these other medications that'll save me a lot of money and therefore my condition. So now the doctor, the good intentions of CMS to roll out these programs that provide cost transparency and the potential for, you know, good, solid clinical recommendations, you know, that opportunity has been lost because now the physician's frustrated that she was, you know, she had abrasion when she was in the system and realized that, you know, she got uh, recommendations that were not appropriate based on condition or or even, you know, possibly drug class or quantity or anything else that would be needed. Um, and now she's having to deal with a phone call from the member who's getting the exact same information. And she has to address the same issue with the patient who's now calling because they're directly being contacted about switching to a lower cost alternative or at least the availability of something that's more cost effective.
0: All right. So I want to just shout out to the listeners for just a second and try to say this through a patient's eyes because you're putting me on stage here as the patient, which is terrific as I'm not the, I'm not a pharmacist, not a physician, not a clinician. So here's my take the technology, the approach, the mission that you've described um Leticia, in, in in reading up on active radar and the ability to leverage this catalog and the pricing engine what this sounds like is that you're going to find the best alternative specifically for my case and it's going to be free with regards when i say free i mean free data you the usage of good data that's out there Uh, The NDCs that are available, the contraindications, the MediSpan information, like all that kind of stuff per se, to be able to give more data to the clinician, to the pharmacist, to the physician teams um, for my ongoing therapy and take away the obstacles to make me feel like as the patient that I'm constantly up against strange changes that I don't understand within my pharmacy benefit insurance And this approach is pure in, I say pure in spirit, because it sounds like it's bringing the best of the best from an analytical perspective to the table. Now, if we insert insert this into the real world, we know that there are PBMs out there who are making formulary suggestions based on what's more profitable for them than what's in the best interest of the patient. So how do we get past that when we have the, the technology and the capability through an active radar right in front of us to make this this situation not only get accelerated and work, but also provide great pricing. How do we use this to break the armor of the status quo?
3: So you have to start with a clinically sound um, backbone that's free of um, any type of, you know, formulary rebate agendas, it's just, pure clinical, which is what Active Radar does, and then apply the patient and you know Part D sponsors uh, pricing information. So if clinical is first and pricing is second, um, then everything falls into place. So if you have drug A and you wanna recommend drug B, if they're perfectly lined up clinically first, and then the pricing shows that it is more cost-effective, then that's an opportunity. It's a real clinically sound opportunity that, that is also cost effective. So it's it's truly a win-win for everybody. But in order to come up with that drug pairing of, you know, here's the incoming drug A, and now I'm going to line it up to it's, you know, it has to be equal or superior alternative, um, that takes a lot of work because it's not just simply taking drug buckets and saying, okay, In this drug class, we have these 12 high cholesterol medications. Yeah, you do. And some are tier three and some are tier one. That's the pricing information. But that's not helpful to the patient or to the prescriber. There's, you know, there's subcategories within categories. You know, some are, you know, more effective. Some are less effective. Some have more side effects. Some have less side effects. Um, some are injected. Some, you know, you could take by mouth. Um, some, you know, have guidelines that, that say that this is the drug of choice. You should always start with drug A. So you don't want to present drug B knowing that guidelines have said that that's the second line agent. So there's a lot of nuances clinically in our clinical brain that we could use as pharmacists and physicians to apply to these recommendations that we make um, in the system. And that's what Active Radar has done is we've put on our clinical hat and said, okay, what factors would I have to consider in order to say, I'm gonna line drug A to line uh, to drug B? What are all of the considerations that I have to know operationally at the PBM and clinically as a pharmacist to pair up these drugs? So we did that. We created data elements to attach to those factors that we know we have to um, impose on our decision making process, and we've automated this and and that's our clinical catalog. so we will never we would never recommend an inferior drug to another drug, so it's you know our catalog has been set up so that it has to be equal or superior in terms of you know all the factors I just mentioned, you know the the uses that the drug can be used for, the evidence that you know one is not superior to the other, side effect profile, um, you know, research studies that that might show in a head-to-head trial that drug A is better than drug C, et cetera.
4: Todd, think of it this way: the work that we do is manufacturer agnostic. That's not true of how PBM formularies operate today. And then in what's probably a most often used term these days, we follow the science, uh-huh. meaning our pharmacists and physicians on our pharmacy and therapeutics committee do all the clinical research to understand what pairs there are between drugs. And we look at all the clinical information, the research, the science, the data. And that group of clinicians, pharmacists and physicians are not looking manufacturer specific. They're not looking at any economics. They're simply looking at pure clinical information to say, is drug A equivalent clinically to drug B? Now we have, as you mentioned a bit ago, we have a pricing engine that applies all those economic factors after that work is done, but that's not available to the clinicians. So we're not asking them to make determinations based on economics, we're asking them to make determinations simply based on clinical elements. So we're manufacturer agnostic and we follow the science.
3: So I just had a thought and that is that um, I would say the main difference between our approach and what we believe is on the market currently is that we look at you know clinical factors first and economics second, and I would describe that their process is the reverse, that they look at the economics first because of, you know, formulary placement or, you know, brand versus generic, whatever, and clinical second. It's almost like clinical is very, it's a very directional recommendation in their world where, like the example that I walked you through, Todd, you're on a cholesterol med. Okay, here's another cholesterol med that you might consider. Without regard to, you know, are those drugs lined up correctly? And and like I mentioned, Active Radar does it in the reverse. We ask the question, are they clinically paired up correctly first? And then we apply the pricing after the answer is yes.
0: Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna call this evidence-based reimbursement. And I'm gonna invent the term where <laughs> we must adopt a clinical information to the forefront and profit afterwards. So I'm going to call it evidence-based reimbursement. Okay.
3: Todd,
0: you're hired. <laughs> Coming back to the show and we'll, we'll build a whole series on evidence-based reimbursement. And now uh, the clinical side of this, which is what our politicians should be paying attention to, which is outcomes. They'd be like, Hey, listen, we're going to come to an outcome-based reimbursement. This is, uh, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based reimbursement, and it'll it'll hierarchy above the the lobbyists per se that get in between our physicians and our pharmacists and our politicians and the reimbursement and the whole reason that we're in this mess from the beginning. And I believe in it. And by the way, there is no reason that organizations can't profit using an evidence-based reimbursement model. Absolutely not they'll definitely not be profiteering anymore, which is much different than um, being able to build a business around it.
4: Well, I I think we certainly agree with that. I mean, there, there is a lot of what the industry calls wasteful spending out there, meaning that there are dollars going for pharmaceutical products and all kinds of medical treatment that actually have lower cost alternatives. The key to eliminating that wasteful spending is clinical information and economic information that's accurate delivered to the physician at the point of care, which is exactly what CMS is trying to do with these new sets of regulations. They are trying to force the industry to use the available technology that is tremendous. It's great to be able to have the technology to deliver that kind of information into the exam room, but as we know, and there's a lot of writing being done about that these days, the technology is only as good as the data that's being put through it. And right now, that data is the limiting factor. In fact, the data is going through there is actually inhibiting the technology because it's so inaccurate, physicians turn off the system, which is really tragic. The opportunity now exists to electronically send information to the point of care, but physicians don't use it as much as they should. And that's really unfortunate.
0: So who are the people that need to hear this messaging to really understand that the change is in the best interest of the patient outcomes and still giving us an opportunity to leverage technology to save time with our uh, clinical pharmacist, as well as the information that we're pushing back to the electronic health record to update the knowledge um, and, and, and accelerate Uh, the information for the physician so that they can keep up?
4: I think it's an easy answer. It's he who pays for it, right? It's the payers and it's the patient. They're the ones that have the economic stake in this. And the patient has, of course, the clinical stake, meaning they have a medical condition that a physician is trying to treat, which says, do the right thing clinically. And the payer is saying, I will pay for that, but I don't want to pay more than I need to. And the patient is certainly saying today, gosh, my out-of-pocket costs continue to increase, so I don't want to have to pay more than that either. And in the prescription drug world today, there are thousands upon thousands of clinically appropriate lower-cost medications that could be used in situations where they're not. And they're not being used because that information is not being presented at the appropriate time to the physician who ultimately writes the prescription. But we have the ability to do that today and that will in fact impact wasteful spending and accelerate price transparency, which is what everybody wants. People wanna know what healthcare costs today. And that in and of itself will help drive change.
3: So I would say that it's uh, CMS that needs to hear this because the pecking order is CMS has these mandates They have pushed the mandates to the Part D sponsors, but the Part D sponsors don't own these systems or the data going into the systems. So they put pressure on, you know, let's say the PBM that they're delegating the function to, right? And if the PBM has, you know, less or subpar therapeutic alternatives, uh, that information is going to go to the patient and to the prescriber. It'll be less useful information in a wonderful system and infrastructure that's available. Um, so I believe it's CMS that needs to hear this and that they need to continue to uh, refine what they're requesting, that it's not just that it's up and running, but that it be useful because it does have the, you know, the potential to impact um, even patient compliance, right? If the patient can't afford their medication, there's no way they can be compliant with it, they're not going to pick it up from the pharmacy.
4: You know, CMS is certainly the big payer. And Letitia is correct. And think about this. I mean, our experience is these types of programs can save as much as 15 to 20 percent off of total drug spend. That's certainly a lot more than $75 million that CMS has kind of estimated. If you apply that percentage against your $145 billion they spend, you're talking about billions upon billions of dollars. That's available with systems like Active Radar. And from that perspective, it not only saves CMS money, but it also saves the patient money. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish here. Is clinically appropriate economically viable prescriptions?
0: That sounds good to me bring that on i <laughs> I want all of my medications to be driven by clinical thought and pharmacist thought, physicians working with pharmacists first before it ever is picked because the insurer gets more money out of it it's It's like a no dumb no moment for for me, and I'm sure for anyone listening to this that understands that our medication is about making us sustain or feel better or get well or recover or whatever the plan is. But regardless, I want a clinician in charge of that. I don't want, I don't want the, the profit side of, of PBM in charge of that.
4: Right. Along with the idea that, you know, all of us go to the physician and frankly we go home with the expectation that we're going to get a prescription. You know, that's the easy treatment. We all think that way and that's been around for a long time. Unfortunately, that easy treatment is becoming more and more expensive. The out-of-pocket cost for that patient to accommodate that easy treatment is growing and growing significantly. The good news is that doesn't have to happen, not just by virtue of the benefit plan they have, but by virtue of the therapeutic alternatives that are available. You know, there is just significant generics available these days. And we talk to a lot of organizations that say, well, gosh, you know, my employer already says we have 85% generic utilization in our program. Our answer to that is congratulations, or it actually, it should. If you're not at that, about that level, you're not really doing a good job. But the question these days isn't, are you taking a generic? The question is, are you taking the right generic? There are a lot of generics across all these hundreds of therapeutic drug classes, and they all have different costs, and some have different clinical outcomes. But if you match up the clinical capability of the generic with the less expensive alternative, you can have that that win-win situation. So the clinically appropriate therapeutic alternative that's lower cost is what you ought to be looking for these days and that database exists with Active Radar.
0: That's awesome. I'm excited. Well, we have to bring you back both of you. Uh Leticia, thank you so much for being the pharmacist. You're the compass to pointing true north. So, thank you for being here and and Dave, it's been awesome having you be part of this conversation and I'm excited to learn more about Active Radar and what you're doing. We're going to be using Uh, Instagram, Twitter, um, as well as uh, LinkedIn to get this messaging out. If you're listening right now, please send this podcast to a fellow pharmacist, as well as more importantly, someone within your state, um, Medicaid systems, Medicare Part D systems, any of the politicians that you have relationships with. Just send this in, in an email and say, hey, listen to this episode. Very interesting concepts to do um, evidence-based reimbursement versus profit-based reimbursement um, to to shift um, what what our tax dollar is doing for the health of our 330 million Americans out there and um, and re- rinse and repeat. So I thank you both, um, Letitia and Dave. Thank you so much for being here today.
4: Thank you, Todd. We appreciate the opportunity. You have a good thank you.
2: PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.
1: Heading to Orlando for the Super Conference next week? Join RX Safe, Liberty Software, Real Value Products, and fellow PDS members for an evening of drinks, desserts, and drugs. Well, I didn't see that coming. Friday night at Top Golf Orlando, you'll have access to an open bar, free food, unlimited golf, and loads of fun activities. Let
4: the dancing begin.
1: Plus, we'll be offering huge giveaways to pharmacy owners who attend. Please listen carefully. RSVP soon because the event is almost sold out. Remember, it's Friday, February 18th, right after the conference. We'll have free transportation to and from the Disney Hotel. For more information, visit rxsafe.com. That's rxsafe.com. Can we do that again?